Amanda, remember that time one of Ireland's greatest poets was also a politician and an occultist? Welcome to Remember That Time in Historical Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb, and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all their favorite moments in history. And it's, hey, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I know that when the episode goes up, it will be after St. Patrick's Day, but for us, at time of recording, it's tomorrow. So, slancha. Uh Slancha. For our drink update today, slancha. What is your drink? I'm having some apple cider, some uh, spiked hard cider, Mm -hmm. spiked cheese, hard cider. Um, It's a brand I've never tried before. It's pretty good. Nice. I'm drinking water because the allergies and my throat. Oh, I can't. (laughs) I talk all day. I talk to children all day and my throat is so dry. Tis the season, baby. Mm -hmm. It sure is. Here we are. We're both wearing our green shirts, which no one can see but us, but that's okay. Fully didn't realize I put on a green shirt when I got home. Just was the first shirt I picked out. (laughs) I'm wearing a Penguins St. Patrick's Day hockey jersey. Excellent. Yeah. So we're ready to go. We are. Now now a perfect time for you to hear this is after the holiday has happened. (laughs) As we gear up for the holiday. Yep. (laughs) Whatever. Um, Well, today we're continuing our Irish topics. Yes. And we are discussing the poet William Butler Yeats, a.k.a. W.B. Yeats. I'm excited. I love him. He's really interesting. He's very interesting. Weird. <laughs> um, yeah, right off the top, we're going to kind of skim over some of the more, like, minute details. Um, I, there is, like, a lot to read and learn about the stuff that, like, he was into. But if I started talking about all of that, it would have, like, we would have been here for a really long time. Yeah, and he also lived through a hugely important, like, cultural and historic moment. And so that goes into all of that also. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to be focusing mostly on just, like, his personal story. Cool. um, As much as we can. Cool. So, ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Great. So William Butler Yates is born on June 13th, 1865 in Sandy Mount in County Dublin, Ireland. Sandy Mount. God, Mm -hmm. I love Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) His father is John Butler Yates. And for some background on like his family here, John is a descendant of a Willamite soldier who was a follower of King William III of England, also known as William of Orange. Interesting. Um, And Benjamin Yates, who is that soldier's grandson, therefore W.B. Yates's great-great-grandfather, Okay, had married a woman named Mary Butler... And she was part of a landed gentry family. Okay, yes. And so after they got married, they kept the name Butler in their family name. So that's why he is Butler, Butler Yates. Yates. Got you. Um, around the time that William's parents get married, William's father is studying law. Hmm. But later he begins to study art at the Heatherly School of Fine Art in London. 
Um, and he's like a pretty well-known artist. Um, he does mostly portraits and such. Mm. Uh, William's mother is Susan Mary Pollocksven. Sorry Ooh, if I say that wrong. That's a fun one. She comes from Sligo, and she is part of a wealthy merchant family. So they got monies. <laughs> they sure do. Um, but soon after William is born, the family actually relocates to her family home in Sligo, um, and they stay there with her extended family, and that sort of becomes, like, the land of his childhood. He considers it sort of a spiritual home. Yeah, I either knew and forgot or didn't know that he was not born in Sligo, because that's what I think of as his home. Because, yeah, well, like he all the the stuff about him <laughs> is yeah. all there. You know what I mean? Like the museum yeah. for him and what it's all in Sligo. Yeah, that was like a good bit of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes about it a lot. Yes, yes. So yeah, um, a lot of the family is very artistic. His brother Jack eventually becomes an esteemed painter. Um, his sisters, Elizabeth and Susan Mary, who um, are known as Lolly and Lily, which I love. That's Why like not? Their, their nicknames. Nothing to um, do with either of their names. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But they are involved in the arts and crafts movement, which is exactly what it sounds like. That <laughs> is incredible. <laughs> the idea that there was an art. arts and crafts movement. I love yeah, that. Yeah, it was just a matter of like focusing on this particular type of art but it's like it's exactly what it sounds like that is delightful (laughs) yes so william is raised as a member of the protestant ascendancy sure which is the minority in ireland at the Mm -hmm. time however they have control economically politically socially and culturally which is so wild because ireland is so catholic <laughs> well it is now but it was not at, well i mean it well, was it there was were for more a lot Catholics, of its history but, too it's just wild that that happened <laughs> yeah um so i read this quote from the poetry foundation's website and it said most members from this minority considered themselves english people who happened to have been born in ireland that tracks <laughs> But Yates staunchly affirmed his Irish nationality, yes, which we'll did. talk more about. That sounds about right to me that all of the minority Protestants were like, we're really English. You know how it goes? Well, they just consider themselves Anglicized, which is true. They yeah, are. They, and they, they by this point, they very much were. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the 19th century, obviously, there's a big nationalist revival in mm-hmm. Ireland, and this, like, directly disadvantages his family and the heritage that he comes from. Not super, not, like, a big concern for him personally, <laughs> you know? But just for, like, his class in general. Yeah, and, like, economically, it's not amazing, but right, he doesn't really care for the most part. Yeah. In 1867, the family moves to London to support his father's art career. Mm-hmm. And he they actually live in London for quite a while. It is so rare that you hear about, like, an actual career professional artist with, like, a whole big family. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes mm-hmm. they're married. Sometimes they have, like, 
one love child, right? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. so rare that you think of like a career artist in this time period as yeah. having like full wife, children, like whole family. Yeah. So at first when they moved to London, the kids are all educated mostly at home. Um, their mom tells them Irish folk tales. Uh, their father... This is a quote. Provided an erratic education in geography and chemistry and took William on natural history explanation explorations of the nearby, I think they Slough. pronounce it Slough mm-hmm. countryside. Oh my um, gosh. So he gets a lot of like erratic natural education. <laughs> yeah. That's a wonderful um, way to put that. Yeah. It's not formal. Right. So I guess the opposite of that is erratic. Erratic, I suppose. <laughs> On January 26th of 1877, he enters the Godolphin School, and he attends it for about four years. Uh, Overall, he's a very poor student, and his teachers say he's, like, bad at spelling and doesn't pay much attention. But he is interested in biology and zoology, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, by 1880, for financial reasons, the family ends up going back to Dublin. And in October of 1881, William resumes his formal education. Um, he goes to Dublin's Erasmus Smith High School, which is also known as just the high school. <laughs> like, when I went to look at it, I, like, looked it up, and the Wikipedia page was like, the high school. And I was like, well. There are many high schools. What do you mean? <laughs> The high school. The high, the high school. The one, the only. Yeah. But around this time is when he begins to really start writing poetry. In 1885, the Dublin University Review publishes his first poems, mm. as well as an essay that he wrote entitled The Poetry of Sir Samuel Ferguson. Um, in that same year, he meets John O'Leary who is an Irish patriot um, who at this time has just returned to Ireland after 20 years of imprisonment and exile. Wow. Because he was a nationalist uh-huh. revolutionary. Yep. Um, and O'Leary sort of teaches him that enthusiasm for like Irish works, books, mm-hmm. music. Um, and he would encourage young writers to write about those subjects. And Yeats up to this point sort of is more romantic and that sort of thing. But then he gets very much into the Irish legends and folklore, which if you've read any of his poems, you will notice right away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, from 1884 to 1886, he begins attending the Metropolitan School of Art, which is now the National College of Art and Design. And then in 1887, his family returns to London. And this is when things start to get a little weird. <laughs> I just looked at the next note, and you are correct. <laughs> it's going to be kind of weird from here on out. So just fair warning. We're bringing a strange energy to the studio. Yes, thing. 100%. There's a weird en- energy in here. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, in March of 1889, William meets a woman named Maud Gone. She's 23, 
she is an English heiress, but an ardent Irish nationalist. Yes. He is in love with her. He sure is. <laughs> she is less interested. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, while they are both Irish nationalists, he's not quite as active i guess you could she say. is but it is her life it is yeah and there's a lot more about her but like she's I, a fascinating woman she, oh my god yeah on her own she's very interesting yeah um so we are gonna loop back around to her here in a sec but in 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 the interest of staying on the timeline that's we'll, when we'll, we'll move on mo- uh, for momentarily yeah um in march of 1890 William joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which is, again, exactly what it sounds like. Excuse me? (laughs) It is a secret society devoted to the study and practice of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities. Why not? He's the weirdest man. (laughs) But do you know what I find interesting about this society? I didn't read a ton about it, but the one little blurb that stuck in my mind was that it was founded by um, Masons track but okay that makes big, sense to me a big difference was that in this society um women were allowed in and were given equal Excellent. status to men Excellent. in this one so we'll it give said, them that hey all of you weird little girls on the playground who got really into <laughs> unicorns do you want to come hang out and talk about ghosts with us and all those weird little girls who pretended to be wolves in the schoolyard said i absolutely want to come talk about ghosts with you were you a horse girl or were a wolf girl? Were- <laughs> All kinds are welcome here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So around the same time that he's in this group, he, along with um, Ernest Reese, co-founds the Rhymers Club, which is a group of London-based poets. Um, they meet regularly in a Fleet Street tavern to recite their poetry hey uh hey guys bad club name (laughs) could have gone a little harder with you are poets and you chose (laughs) rhymers are you sure they just want it to be clear what you're joining when you get there positive that that's what you want to call your club that's so funny Hey, the creativity went into the work, not the club. <laughs> That's fair. They said, ah, the Rhymers Club. It's what we are. And they moved Good on. Enough. It works. Um, during the, that particular time, um, William publishes two anthologies of the works of the people in the club. Mm-hmm. The first one in 1892 and the second in 1894. Um, William has... As you might imagine, a lifelong interest in mysticism and, like, occultism and astrology. Um, Which, like, it makes sense with his interest in Irish mythology to start. I feel like it makes a pretty natural flow from point A to point B. Yeah. There's a lot about, like, his theories and stuff if you go to if you find his article in the poetry foundation.org's oh yeah that's a great resource there's a whole bit in there which we'll loop we'll touch on it a little bit later but there's a bit in there that talks a lot about like 
the conclusions that he comes to about life in general. Mm -hmm. And I didn't include it all in here because it would be extensive. And (laughs) and it's like a complicated, like I would have had to read it word for word because otherwise I would not have been able to describe it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So (laughs) he's very into this whole world of spiritualism. Right. And in fact, later on in like 1911, he joins a paranormal research organization oh. called the Ghost Club, which yes. another great name. I feel like I'm a, I, every day I'm a day and a half away of becoming this man. <laughs> I'm I already closer. in the Ghost Club. I get closer every second of every day. Mentally, I'm in the Ghost Club. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I just need an actual Ghost Club to join and I would in a heartbeat. For sure. Um, I found this interesting. William's first significant poem is titled The Island of Statues. The piece was serialized in the Dublin University Review, meaning like published over a course of time. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to include it in his first collection, but it was too long. Huh. And it was never published in full in his lifetime. Like, uh, like on its own huh. other yeah, than in it had been published in form pe- huh. and the poem in its complete form was not published f- until 2014 wow isn't that wild yeah because we've had all of his work for a good I long know. while seriously so let's get back to this weird relationship <laughs> please it's the strangest so in 1891 william visits Maud in Ireland and proposes to her, but she rejects him. For the first of how many times? Well, we're going to talk about three more right now, <laughs> but there are four more in total. I fully didn't look at the, that next note. I just... <laughs> Wait, let me just double check that. Yep, yep, yep. There are four more total. But Excellent. he proposes again in 1899, <laughs> 1900, and 1901. Good Lord. We'll talk about the fourth later. Uh-huh. Uh, she refuses every time. Of course. And then in 1903, she marries someone else. Uh-huh. He's an Irish nationalist as well. His name is Major John McBride. Um, Their marriage is also weird, and I definitely suggest looking into it. Well, that's um, just her life was just madness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, He only really has one other, like, re- affair or relationship at this point with a woman named Olivia Shakespeare, um, who he first met in 1894, and they kind of were only together for about three or so years. I will say this about him, is that, he was obviously obsessed with Mongon, but he also like kind of fell in love a little bit with every woman he ever ran into. Yeah. Like when But there's like nothing else significant right, up until Right. But like, later you know, when he life. met Constance Markovich and Eva Gore Booth, he was fully in love with both of them despite one of them being a lesbian. <laughs> right, right. And right. he got over that pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is But that also is just of sort that. of the nature of the type of poet that he was. So true. You he, know, like, that. It, it's so... Romanticized. Yeah, and his writing, obviously, and that's also just how he lived his life. Yeah, that's true. I think it probably has a lot also to do with, like, his spiritual nature. Yes, oh, He for just, sure. like, feels connected to people in a very intense way. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, But he and McBride 
become basically lifelong enemies. Of course. Of course. Writes letters and poems about how much he doesn't like him. And um, he, um, yeah, it's bad. Um, (laughs) He is very worried about Maud eventually converting to Catholicism. Oh, sure. Um, and is afraid that she's going to come under the influences of the priests. And he is a Protestant, but he's also mostly agnostic. Like, right. he's raised Protestant, but in practice, he's mostly agnostic. So he's not... That freaks him out. Um, he is very happy, though, to know that her marriage to McBride is not happy. Um they do eventually separate. Again, it's a lot. Like, they have a child together, and then eventually they, she wants to divorce him, but he, like, won't allow it, and the courts don't allow it, and so they're just separated for basically the rest of their <laughs> marriage. And right, right. It's classic. Very complicated. <laughs> we will get back to him later, too. Mm-hmm. So that's where we stand with Maud now. Yeah. She will return. In 1897, William is introduced to an Irish dramatist, folklorist, and theater manager named Lady Gregory. I love Lady Gregory. She becomes very significant in his life. Um, She really encourages his nationalism, and, and it also encourages him to continue writing drama. That woman loved the theater. Oh, my God. It was her whole life. Yes, it was. Um, Well, together, they, along with a playwright named Edward Martin, uh, found the Irish Literary Theater and the Abbey Theater, which I'm sure there's a lot more we could look into. Yeah, it's a really interesting. That whole thing is really interesting, too. Yeah. Um, So the three of them, along with some other writers... Um, eventually are responsible for establishing the Irish literary revival movement, which, again, is just like a focus on those folk traditions. And this was also Um, in the midst of a larger Irish cultural revival where people were trying to return to using the language more and um, playing like sports, like classic Irish sports and music like it was a whole nationalist a a lot that was happening in the literary revival is that things were being translated yes um so that we could access those old traditions like songs and Mm -hmm. stories yeah um so that was a big part of his work in particular um he spends a lot of time at lady gregory's home in cool park in county galway um, eventually, he purchases a ruined Norman castle. Why not? <laughs> called Thor Bally? I don't know how to say it. I'm sorry. Um, which is near where she lives. Um, under the name of the tower, this structure would become a dominant symbol in many of his latest and best poems. The tower. He bought an yeah. old castle and he named it the tower. Because, you know, in Ireland, guy. you can just buy an old castle. You most I guess. certainly can. They're freaking everywhere. Crazy. <laughs> Dude, last week, we were, not last week, the week before, we were talking about all her castles. Mm-hmm. Grace O'Malley's many castles. Many, many castles of Grace O'Malley. So um, that, there's a name of a play for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, during this same time period, he is publishing a lot more volumes of poetry. Um, he publishes the aptly named Poems. God, this guy and the names. <laughs> in 1895. Um, the Wind Among the Reeds, which is one of my favorites, in 1899. Uh, in the Seven Woods in 1903. And The Green Helmet in 1910. So we're going to move up a little bit. Things are moving. Like, again, there's a lot more that goes into that movement, the Irish literary movement, that is really interesting, but honestly could be its own episode. Yes. So we won't talk too too in-depth about it. Um, I got this, I think, also from the Poetry Foundation, Foundation, but I forgot to write it down. So I think that's where it's from, <laughs> but I'm not positive. Sorry. Um, but this is a quote. Um, the years from 1909 to 1914 mark a decisive change in his poetry. The otherworldly ecstatic atmosphere of the early lyrics had cleared, and the poems in, again, this is a collection, Responsibilities, Poems, and a Play, which was published in 1914, show a tightening and harding of, hardening of his verse line, a more sparse and resonant imagery, and a new directness directness with which Yeats confronts reality and its imperfections. And again, like that makes sense for the times that he was living in. It like naturally changed with the what was happening in the world around him. Yeah, plus he's getting older. Yeah. So, you know, at that point your view changes. Mm-hmm. And then this he is also writing a lot more of his political poetry at this yes right because that's that's what's happening (laughs) yeah he never is terribly like terribly in depth politically no no. um but he has writing he has a few he does he is more political like in his life but not as much in his writing because his focus for the most part is really on um you know the traditions and um the imagery Mm -hmm. but again that in and of itself was a political movement at that time totally you know Totally. It's all mixed up together. Yeah. So, speaking of the times, <laughs> hello, it's 1916. Do we remember what happens in 1916 in Ireland? Amanda, would you uh, like to tell us? Yes, the that's when the Easter Rising happens. Correct. So We have an episode who, about it if you want to know more about it. Guess who's involved in the Easter Rising? Who? Our number one enemy, John McBride. <laughs> and as a result, he is executed. That's right. So Gates is like, yo, maybe she'll marry me now. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> he just died in a hugely <laughs> upsetting well, they've, political well, moment. Okay. But they've been separated for a while but at this point. Still, but still, a lot is happening yes. in the world. <laughs> but also, uh, the, his biographer named R.F. Foster said that it seemed like by this point he was kind of doing it out of a sense of duty. Like he had pined after her for so long that like now her husband is gone. Now that she's I... widowed with a child, he wants to take right. care of her. And sure. actually she has like two other illegitimate children, wow. which we'll touch on again in a minute. Um, So he does propose to her again in 1916 for the final time. Um. This was a quote that I um, just, eh, I'll just read it. Um, Gunn's history of revolutionary political activism, as well as a series of personal catastrophes in the previous few years of her life, including chloroform addiction, 
and her troubled marriage to McBride made her a potentially unsuitable wife. Really? No kidding. Chloroform addiction? Excuse me? Yeah, I also had that reaction. I was like, how do you... Good lord. How are you... (laughs) Alive. Yeah, like how how do you get to the point of forming an addiction without dying? That's what I would like to know. Yes, that is... Oh, Yeah. Anyway, so he's refused again by her. And then he's like, well, maybe because by this point in his life, he like wants to get married and produce an heir. Sure. It's like a big it's a big motivator for him. Yeah. So he thinks maybe her daughter from a previous relationship. Oh, bud. I forgot about this. Her name is Isolt. I think that's how you say her name. Gone. Who is 21 at the time. How old is he? Um, I don't know. It's 1916, so do some math. 1865 is when he was born. 65. I'm just going to do a calculator. My brain hurts. <laughs> I can't do it without a calculator, so you're already stuck 51. Jesus. Yes. 30 so years. My guy. Not great. Um, In 1917, he does propose to her, and he is rejected. Thank the good Lord. Because <laughs> yikes. So... Um, then in September of 1917, he proposes to someone else entirely. Uh, her name is Georgie Hyde Lees. She's, she goes by George. Uh, she is 25. Okay. She says yes, and they get married on October 20th. Sure. Why not? At this point. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we are. Uh, they go on to have two children named Anne and Michael. And... Okay, so okay. So during their marriage, they start partaking in something called automatic writing. Okay. Which basically entails they they essentially do séances. They contact spirits and guides. Oh, yes, okay, I remember this now. Yeah, that they call instructors while they are in a trance. And then the spirits communicate with them through um, basically like geometric shapes and symbols, which they then interpret. And he puts all of this into a publication called A Vision, which is published in 1925. That is what, like, during their... Marriage, they hold more than 400 sessions of automatic writing. Are you guys okay? (laughs) And they produce nearly 4,000 pages. Are you guys okay, though? (laughs) That he then studies and organizes. Okay. Sure. So this is a little bit of that, what we were talking about before, like his conclusions about life. So he believes certain patterns exist the most important being what he calls the gyres which i i have read some of his writing about the gyres um and it's like (laughs) it's so hard to explain 
It's like because he believes that nothing. I mean, it's not it, like I get it, I, but also I it's can't not explain it. Yeah, it's on the Poetry Foundation's website. I just go and read about it because it's like he talks about the like Greek society and how it started then, and like it it has to do with the moon's twenty eight day cycle, and he believes that at a certain point during that you're like at your peak. Of being like your Create, best, most creative, or whatever. It, yeah, it's so it's trippy, man. Could, could you say? But that, it's interesting. Could could you say that he uh, did some ghostwriting? <laughs> <laughs> I could, and I would, <laughs> and I will I again. Will, I will say that now. He 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 ghost wrote some poems. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah, he sure did. So there's um that. <laughs> we I gotta can't. move on. We can't get caught in the weeds. It's so fascinating and a lot bizarre yeah. that I just can't. And I'm not saying that like I have zero qualms with mysticism. I think it's wonderful and fascinating. It, and I don't have any real qualms with what he's talking about. It just like I my brain it's hard is to like, wrap your what? head around. Yeah, because but it's, it's so I recommend reading about it because it's, so it's very interesting. You know, like I, I don't have <laughs> yeah. a word for it. <laughs> it's a very unique conclusion. Yes. that he met. Yeah, and yeah. and and really, it's just his way of like. It's almost like his way of of finding words to explain his process. Kind of, yeah. But it's just that his process is so complex. (laughs) No, but he also believes, like, that this is the nature of human. Right, yes, that's true. you know, it's like, it's very interesting. But we'll move on now. So in 1922, William is appointed to the first Irish Senate. That's right. Did you see that coming? From the mysticism <laughs> rant, probably not. Uh, and then Did he's you forget reapp- that he was also a nationalist. <laughs> he was also, it's been yeah. a while. And then he's reappointed to a second term in 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, again, lots of stuff you could talk about in his time on the Senate. He was very, um, what's the word, abrasive. Sure. Well, and then also the Senate in and of itself was this whole other. The existence oh, of God, it was a yeah. whole other conflict. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's born basically out of a civil war. Uh-huh. And it's um, not a happy medium for most people. <laughs> correct. Yeah. So, um, in December of 1923, William Butler Yeats is awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for, quote, his always inspired poetry, which in a highly artistic form gives expression to the spirit of a whole nation. That's wow. Lovely. Heavy. Yeah, it is lovely, but a big burden. Um, (laughs) He did not see it as a burden. He was very into it. He was like, yes, I am the national poet of Ireland, and I am proud. (laughs) Um, Obviously, winning the prize leads to a significant increase of sales of his books. Obviously. Um, You know, his publishers are capitalizing on the publicity. And for the first time, he has money. You know, in his adult life, anyway. What are you um, talking about? He bought a castle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, but hello, it's Ireland. It's not like you need millions of dollars to buy a castle. And also, his family is rich, and it's like, eh, you know. But they had a lot of debt, so oh, now that yeah. he has money, he can pay off his own debts and his father's debts because nice. he's making all this bank. 
Um, speaking of bank, <laughs> that's a weird segue. <laughs> in 1924, he chairs a coinage committee that is meant to select the designs for the first currency of the Irish Free State. Huh. Um, so he wants um the <laughs> I'm just gonna quote it. He sought a form that was elegant racy of the soil and utterly unpolitical which is like wow <laughs> that's a big ask um they eventually decide on the artwork of percy metcalf and he's very happy with this um there are a lot of that you like instances that you can read about him getting like very fired up about like senate decisions and writing these sweeping like statements about it <laughs> it's a lot mm-hmm. um but in 1928, he retires from the Senate because his health is declining. Sure. Um, he, after this, I mean, the world starts to change in a way that, like, kind of changes him, right? So near the end of his life, we're reaching the Wall Street crash Oh, wow, 29. yeah. That's so weird to think about, like, in, yeah. in the fullness of time... 1916 is not that far away from 1930, but it feels wildly different. The culture was so different. It shifted so quickly. Well, and then there's the Great Depression. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That'll do it. (laughs) You know, like that, like the Titanic launching was not that far away from that time period, even though it feels wildly different. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting Um, time in history. (laughs) Yeah, so because of that, around the time of the Great Depression, he starts to sort of lean back into aristocratic sympathies Uh, because he doesn't, he wonders whether democracy can really cope with the economic difficulties. And a lot of times, Um, it didn't. (laughs) It did not, yeah. (laughs) But to be fair, aristocracy would not have been better. Certainly didn't either. (laughs) It was more um, that humans didn't cope well. <laughs> right? That's true. Um, and then during the aftermath of World War One, he is, like, very skeptical of democracy. Um, and, quote, anticipated political reconstruction in Europe through totalitarian rule. Okay. He did, in fact, admire Mussolini sure, quite sure, a bit, sure, which sure. is, like, not a great look. Sure. Also, he... To be fair, didn't have the greatest examples of functional no. democracy no. around him. That's what true. with the constant strain Ireland was under, and also yeah. England just being there and being the way that it is. So yeah, I don't blame well, the him for not being very optimistic about it. Yeah, and and seeing that the aristocracy could so easily stamp out. Those types of issues. Yeah. It's a bummer you know, to know that From a public he, point of view. It's a bummer to know that he fell back on that after how hard the nationalists fought. But it's also like, I, I understand it. <laughs> well, I don't think he was ever super outspoken no, about it no. at all. It's just that that seems to be where his mind went, you know. The older that he got. Which is like, that yeah. also just happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true, I guess. Um, throughout the 1930s... He has several affairs. Okay, sure. Uh, with poets, actresses, novelists. Um, nobody really of too much note. I mean, I have a couple names here, but... Mm, eh. <laughs> um, and then 
On January 28, 1939, at the age of 73, W.B. Yeats dies at, oh boy, here comes some French, uh, at the Hotel Ideal Séjour, don't know if that's right, in Menton, France. Um, he is buried in France at first mm-hmm. in a private funeral. Um, but he and his wife had sort of discussed that he wanted to be buried quickly without fuss. So, like, that was what he wanted. Mm-hmm. However, in September of 1948, his body is moved um, back to County Sligo. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, one of the people involved with this process is Sean McBride, <laughs> who is the son of Maud. And, oh, and John he would roll in his grave. Yeah, and also, well, funny you say that because there's a lot more about his burial, like, and his body being moved. Like, so it's after the war, and things are kind of crazy. So I, I didn't put down all the details because it's like kind of hard to keep straight. But essentially, during the process, his remains basically get put into what is essentially a mass grave. So they're like mixed up with oh, other people's, uh-oh. which is not great, uh-oh. but eventually I guess they get everything sorted out. It's like weird. Ooh, it's very strange. Odd. Um, but I have his, been to uh, his grave, BTW, the one that's in Sligo. I know, I'm jealous. Uh, um, his epitaph is taken from the last lines of his poem under Ben Bulbin, which is an, great one it's one of his final poems and it is cast a cold eye on life on death horsemen pass by it's <laughs> a good one um and i just found this quote from britannica like an interesting way to sort of wrap it up mm-hmm. um it says there is no precedent in literary history for a poet who produces his greatest work between the ages of 50 and 75 Yeats's work of this period takes its strength from his long and dedicated apprenticeship to poetry, from his experiments in a wide range of forms of poetry, drama, and prose, and from his spiritual growth and his gradual acquisition of personal wisdom, which he incorporated into the framework of his own mythology. Ah. Wow. That's well said. Yeah, right? Thanks, Britannica. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to read more of the poetry, but I left my poetry book at home. Um... (laughs) I'm at my parents' house, and I left it at my apartment. So I don't have any to read. But, um, man, I just love his work. Yeah. As a student of poetry Mm -hmm. in college, I was very into Yeats. Yes, I loved reading him in my Irish lit class. Yeah. I think I picked one of his for my – we had to do recitations in that class. I did, too. I'm pretty sure I picked one of his. I did, too. I can't imagine I wouldn't have picked one of his. <laughs> yeah. And I picked one that was exactly 20 lines. I did, too. that was the minimum. <laughs> I did, too. That we were supposed to do. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, he's a fascinating person. Yeah. Um, and he just lived in the most in interesting time, and the world changed so much around him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was weird, but, you know, who isn't? <laughs> you know. Well said. Thank you. But that was the AIDS. Yeah. Awesome. And that wraps up our Irish 
history month that we decided to did, do. Decided to do kind of last minute, yeah. but here we are. So <laughs> I don't know what's coming next. Me either, even a little bit. We'll see. I hate when we don't have a theme because then I'm just <laughs> free floating. And I don't Typical. know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to change my mind a lot when we don't have a theme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. Um, if any of you have any topic suggestions or comments or questions or whatever, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at RTTPod, and you can find us on Facebook by just searching the name of the podcast. Um, we would love it if you would leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Wow. Did it. Man. Well, happy belated St. Patrick's Day, my friends. Um, I hope that you had a wonderful, responsible time. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know who's supposed to start the outro this time. Why don't you? Okay. So we don't know what's coming next time, but until that next time. Remember that time.